You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts on the latest and most important issues in human rights and international humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Rao Wallenberg Institute in Lewin, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. This week, we're in the middle of the Baltic Sea on the small island of Gotland in Sweden, where every year there is a political gathering called Almedalen. The week-long event draws thousands from the political classes, different universities, civil society actors, and the business world. And we're here to listen, learn, and talk about the issues that matter most to us. In this interview from Almadalen, our Stockholm office director, Malin Oud, speaks with Phil Bloomer, who's the executive director of the Business and Human Rights Research Center located in London. They talk about business and human rights, how businesses can be better at protecting human rights and their value chains, and which businesses stand out. Enjoy. So thanks, Phil Bloomer, for joining us uh, here for a little conversation here in Almedalen. Uh, you're the executive director of the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre based in London. That's right. Yeah, but you have colleagues across the world. Yes, yeah, uh, so we have, uh, we have people based in 14 different regions around the world, and they're all charged with trying to ensure maximum transparency about what's happening in business and human rights in their own regions. Secondly, also making sure that there's expanding and strengthened accountability of companies when things go wrong, so that there's remedy for people who are affected by uh, major investments. And then thirdly, our big role is to empower human rights advocates inside companies, inside civil society and inside governments to ensure that we can try and all work together to put human rights at the heart of business. And, and you're here in Almedalen specifically to talk about the role of business in protecting civic space and supporting human rights defenders. Why, why should business care about human rights defenders? How is that relevant? Well, firstly, business has such a fundamental role to play in so many societies now, and particularly those businesses that are investing in uh, many countries where there's high human rights risk, relatively poor lo low levels of governance, that's to say the, the political system is not strong, they can easily slide into situations of actually colluding in the repression of human rights defenders that are perhaps trying to protect their communities and trying to make sure that there's a fair deal between their communities and the major investments that are going in. If those investments are, if those negotiations are unfair, the reality is that there's going to be protests and suspensions. That's going to b make costs balloon often in those situations, particularly around mining, major infrastructure, roads, hydroelectric. All those areas are, are at risk. And then the other area is there is so much competition uh, for maximizing return to shareholders that often companies that are sourcing from countries like Myanmar or Cambodia that are buying goods that are made in special economic zones are actually pressuring for reduced prices which means lowering even the minimum wage the already poverty wage that's paid to the workers in those special economic zones so business can have a profound impact on the human rights of their workers and the communities where they operate and the human rights defenders are often the canary in the coal mine for those businesses telling them what's really happening to the people that they are affecting and therefore the protection of those human rights defenders is vital for businesses to be able to know 
what's actually happening in their supply chains and their operations. Mm. And this type of environment that you're describing with weak governance and uh, poor, poor lack of rule of law, lack of accountability, that's actually a large part of the world. It's a very large part of the world and unfortunately from our experience at the moment it's an increasing part of the world. You know we have uh, civil society laws, NGO laws that are being passed, we're finding human rights defenders around the world, the, the, the rising number of attacks, the criminalization, stigmatization of those human rights defenders is on the rise rather than the decrease. Mm. NGO laws from China to Egypt to Hungary and Poland on our very doorstep of, uh, of Sweden where we are today, these, these countries are closing civic freedoms mm. and, and stigmatizing human rights defenders. Mm. My, my experience is that business are just beginning to realize that they have the responsibility to respect human rights in their own operations. But how do you convince business that they actually also need to take a larger responsibility for, for civic space at large? What, what is civic space anyway? <laughs> well, I like to use the word civic freedoms because space is a very abstract and neutral word. We're actually talking about simple freedoms, the most essential uh, civic freedoms, such as the right to the freedom of association, the right to meet with your fellow workers or your community, the right to elect a representative who will be able to negotiate for that community or for that group of workers in, in some level of, of minimum human security. Uh, so it's, it's those elements, for instance, that are, that, that are crucial. Yeah. And then the right to negotiate, the yeah. right to have collective bargaining, whether as a community to be able to say, this is what we would like in terms of a, a community benefit contract with the mine, or in terms of workers, this is what we would see as the minimum in terms of the wages that should be paid fairly for the productivity of the factory. And these are the minimum health and safety that we require. So we don't get the kind of situation such as Rana Plaza with the factory collapse mm. and over a thousand two hundred workers crushed to death. Mm. A, an interesting uh, part of that story that's seldom told is that there was one group of workers that were saved in that factory and they were the finance and administration workers who were organized so when they ran out of the factory saying the, the walls are cracking the factory is unsafe and the boss told them to go back in their, their leaders were able to say, I'm sorry, we are not going back into that factory. It was the women workers on the, it, who were manufacturing the uh, goods who were un unable to organize, mm. who were uh, prohibited from organizing. It was those women who went back into the factory because they had no representation. Mm. So, so what concretely should business do to prevent that type of situation with, with the Rana Plaza collapse? And what, what do you suggest that companies do that operate in, in that type of high-risk environment uh, in relation to human rights defenders? Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the, there's so many things and mm. it, it, it varies from sector, of course, what's important for brands who are simply sourcing out of Bangladesh or Cambodia is very different to a mining company that's going to invest for perhaps 40 years in a mine in, in Zambia or in, in uh, Guatemala. But for for many of these situations, what we know to be fundamental is the engagement with stakeholders and particularly for companies engaging with those people that they don't want to speak to, mm. i.e. workers' representatives, community representatives, who are going to be people who will not represent the company's interest. 
And instead of simply always speaking to the government, who will always reassure them that you know there's nobody living in that land, if it's a hydroelectric or a major or an agribusiness project, that it's government land. Actually, there's indigenous people who perhaps lived there for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, and so they need to speak to those people. When we did, uh, when we've done the corporate human rights benchmark, where we ranked 100 of the largest companies in the world with the Institute for Human Rights and Business, with Aviva, a major investment house, Nordea, the uh, Swedish bank. When we did that ranking of those companies uh, this year, one of the most shocking things that came out of that was that 80% of those companies, some of the largest companies in the world in the highest risk sectors in terms of human rights, 80% of them did not, have a cons uh, did not have a framework for engagement with their stakeholders. Mm. That goes straight back to this issue of civic freedoms and the defense of human rights defenders. If companies don't have the means by which, a framework by which, they can ensure that they're speaking to those people. Mm. They will simply not find out the dangers that their companies are creating for the human rights of those people. Mm. And that is a, a profoundly dangerous thing for companies, whether they're mining companies or a, a, apparel brands, clothing brands. Because in the end, that reputation risk is very high for all those different, uh, those different companies, particularly from, a, uh, from European or North American com mm. uh, companies. Mm. So the, the one thing that's really been driving this, this progress in terms of corporate accountability yeah. in business and human rights are the UN guiding principles on business yeah. and human rights. And uh, as, as a result of, of uh, uh, those guidelines being adopted a few years ago, a lot of almost all of the major Swedish companies at least now have some form of human rights policy. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I'm not aware of any Swedish companies that is actually uh, sort of taking action specifically mm. on the issue of human rights defenders. So they have general policies uh, in relation to, to human rights, but, but a lot of companies hesitate to speak out on particular cases of, of human rights defenders or on the broader issue of, of repressive legislation uh, that we've seen uh, across the world. Uh, do you know of any Swedish or non-Swedish champions when it comes to uh, business and human rights defenders? Yeah. Well, the first thing to say is that while the general situation is worsening, it's also important to note that, uh, that leading companies are starting to understand that the need for them to use their voice much more positively to try and hold open civic freedoms because their own business freedoms often depend on those same civic freedoms and their own reputation depends upon knowing what's happening in their, in their supply chains and their operations because human rights defenders, whether they're trade unionists or environmentalists or indigenous leaders or women leaders, can, can highlight the difficulties that there are. I think what's important now is we've, there is a business network of, of companies that are starting to come together at the moment, there's no Swedish company involved, but we hope that will change in the future. And that business network is starting to, to work together to find the avenues in which they can begin to influence uh, uh, governments. There have been instances already where com companies have spoken out. And the in what way have they spoken out? So what two does it mean? Yeah. yeah, I'll give you two particular cases which mm. involve Swedish companies and then perhaps one more, uh, a stronger case uh, uh, from another company. But uh, for instance, there is a, 
appalling case at the moment where 14 victims of slavery in Thailand who were forced to sleep with chicken sleep with the chickens in the chicken houses where they were where they were working those people were in forced labor conditions when they spoke out Betagro the chick the Thai chicken company has immediately put a criminal case against them for um, for libel which is a criminal offense in, in Thailand now it's what's interesting is that a company Axe Food from Sweden has already started to organize in order to try and defend those those workers in their supply chain of course because the chickens from Thailand enter all the fast food and the prepared meals for many supermarkets across Europe and we're hoping as the resource center to be able to get more companies to join in and speak both to the Thai government but also to the European Trade Commission to ensure that they also speak to the Thai government and mm. keep a yellow card on uh, Thai imports of chicken uh, to, to Europe. Um, another case would be H&M, the clothing brand, who at least have on occasion spoken out with other companies in Cambodia because there's an annual, uh, there are annual street battles when, the, when workers have protest, protested over the decline in their real wages over the last 10 years. Normally there is a, a very heavy uh, state repression, including breaking the schools of trade unionists who are marching in the streets, and a group of companies, including H&M, Adidas and others, have spoken out saying two things first, saying first to the government that we want better relationships between the government and the trade unions, but secondly also last year that they built in a significant increase in the minimum, they had anticipated a significant increase in the minimum wage in Cambodia, which kind of pulled the rug out from under the, uh, the, the, the factory owners and the government in terms of them saying they have to reduce wages further, otherwise Cambodia will not be competitive. Right. Um, so those are two very important cases. And then another case would be an, a, a company that I can't name at the moment, but there is a company that's spoken out, for instance, much closer to home and therefore more risky in terms of, um, in terms of uh, the situation in Hungary. And they have gone privately to the, to the government and spoken to the Hungarian government, asking them for, to look at this, uh, this very restrictive NGO law that's been put in and the closing particularly of the, or the threatened closure of the, of the Central European University, which is run by, you know, the, the principal is Michael Ignatieff. So those kind of things are, are, are extraordinarily important mm. at, at the moment. And mm. Those actions need to be celebrated alongside, unfortunately, the very substantial collusion that there is by too many irresponsible companies with governments who are trying to close civic space. Mm. And, and it's so important to have these new actors stepping up for human rights, yes. including, including companies, but also including developments we've seen cities taking more responsibility for uh, refugees yes. and for the climate yes. and so yeah. so there is some hope There's I guess even uh, in this uh, quite depressing general <laughs> political global environment there is some hope in, in these new new actors yeah. and you can't be you know you can't be in the field of human rights without being a per permanent optimist but those human rights defenders that I meet you know every other week they remain op permanently optimistic about the need that, about change. They know also that they depend so much on the allies that they can gain in business, 
amongst, in solidarity amongst the civil society organisations, but also those human rights advocates inside government. Because even in the most oppressive government and in the most irresponsible company, there are people who, that none of them are monolithic. There's always human rights advocates uh, within them who are trying to change those institutions and make them see the importance for the, for the business or for the government to actually start to uh, do far more to respect civic freedoms and human rights defenders. Thank you very much, Phil. Thank and you. I look forward to our continued discussion this afternoon. Indeed. Thank you. That interview was recorded from Al Madalin, where we are all week doing uh, different interviews with experts on human rights, international humanitarian law, and other important issues. We'll be back soon with another fresh episode of On Human Rights. Thanks for listening.